0: You know what it's 2020 okay. and yes it's still of 2020. <laughs> yes, it's still 2020.
1: <laughs> it's just you know 2020 plus a little more
0: time. Yeah. oh my gosh, just going to time. Oh. international poet, lyricist, Lady Breon. I am so excited to talk with her. Like, her, her words have just really captivated me. Um, so I'm so excited for her to share her story today. Uh, so Lady Breon, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hey, everyone. Um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm Lady Breon. You know, been doing poetry for quite some time for, from Baltimore City. Um yeah, I don't know what else I should say. I'll just leave
0: it <laughs> at that. So you're, like, right nearby, because I live um, in Arlington, just outside okay. of D.C. Uh, so that was something I really loved. Um, I was like, oh, she's close. She's from the neighborhood. Um. Mm-hmm. So first, I want to, you know, ask you, how did you get into, you know, spoken word poetry and things like that?
1: Yeah, so if I'm being completely honest, when I was in middle school, I used to love watching death poetry jam um, on (laughs) (laughs) on and I was a super fan of like Sonny Patterson and some other um, women poets who used to frequent the show. Um, And I just told myself one day, like, I could do this. I could, I could be a poet just like Sonny Patterson. And, um, you know, wrote my first poem. It was trash, but, my father was very, very like supportive. It was the best thing in the world. And so was a lot of other members of my family, very supportive. And um, so from an early age, I was able to like put my poetry on stages and really got um, the gist of being a performing artist early. And I never stopped.
0: It's true, because you have such a, a way in which you perform your poetry. Because I think the, the style in which you write and in which your poems come forth is it needs to be said. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like Mm -hmm. it needs to be said. It can't just, of course you can read it, but I think there's something so powerful about hearing you do Mm -hmm. that. Did, how long did it take for you to really kind of hone that style and creating that presence?
1: It's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know that it took me that long. I will say that, and this is true for a lot of poets, um, You know, the first style, if you will, is typically mimicking someone else. So I think when I first, you know, started performing, I think I was definitely mimicking sounds that I heard on Deaf Poetry Jam. I think from there, though, um, like I said, finding myself in a, a number of spaces, including I was a policy debater when I was in high school, and my coach asked me to incorporate my poetry into my debate as well. So it was like I found myself in spaces that weren't quite, Poetry based, mm-hmm. and so in those spaces, I think is really where I own my own personal voice, um, because I was kind of kind of trying to carve out a space for me. Um, and and I think I'll also add, it's funny that you said that my work has to be kind of heard, right, to be experienced. So, in 2018, I got my MFA from University of Baltimore in Creative Writing and Publishing Design, and it was there that I actually learned the difference between, like, my voice on page and my voice on stage, because Mm -hmm. in my Mm -hmm. master's program, there were no other spoken word artists. My professors did not have a background in, like, spoken word poetry. They didn't even acknowledge that, like, as a, I I would say, as, like, a, sub-genre or part of the genre itself Mm -hmm. and so I think you know they were really pushing me to hone like a different kind of voice that was to be read and not just to be heard and Mm -hmm. I think I had to push onto them right the difference between stage poetry the different devices that you're going to lean on or you're going to find more prevalent in those kind of writing styles so I definitely think from an early age I was honing my stage skills But in my later professional life is where I really started to think about, okay, what does it mean to be like a written poet, which is different.
0: So do you feel like you've created certain poetry to be read and certain poetry to be performed? And do you prefer one of the two?
1: For my thesis project, my MFA program, that's literally what I was exploring. So I did a dual project where I published a self-published book, and I also published an album, both the same title. Um, they shared a few pieces and the pieces that they shared were pieces that I thought could be appreciated both on page and on stage. Mm. And then they had and then they had independent content where some of them only live in the book because they were written to be read. And then some of them are only on the album because they were written to be heard and experienced. And so, yeah, I definitely used my thesis project as a way to explore what those differences are and what Lady Breon looks like in those different types of spaces.
0: Now, when you were trying to decide what was going to go on the book and what was going to go on the album, and what was going to go on both, I think it is the really interesting intersection. How did you decide what was going to go on both? Yeah, I mean, it really was um, thinking
1: about, you know, what poetic devices were more prevalent and if the poem had qualities that would not make sense if you were only reading it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes I think that my writing is so rhythmic, there's a cadence cadence to it, there may be a song that goes with it, whatever. Like, there are some things that it just doesn't give the same thing if you're reading it. Um, And so, and then there are poems that, you know, say, for instance, if we're playing with form, right? Form cannot be articulated verbally, right? It's something you have to look at for it to make sense, right? Especially if it's if the poem has a shape, right? Concrete poem. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, it's just looking at what devices was I using more prevalently to be able to decide is this a page poem, is this a stage poem? And if it's using both or it is malleable, that's those are the ones that you find on, on both collections.
0: Both I so I, I don't know what poem um or spoken word people initially find you for. I find you. I found you with um, you talk. I talk black, and um, I listen to that over and over. Uh, <laughs> so is and that I know is on um, the 2018 album. Now, is that something that's also in the book?
1: Yes, I talk black is actually one that is on both. Um, and I think you know for that poem, although I definitely feel like it is a different experience when you hear it. Yeah, I think because it is the kind of poem that is making a persuasive argument, if you will, right? The ideas in the poem is really exploring um, African-American vernacular or what folks call ebonics and like how that plays with our history and our current context in America. Um, I had somebody who wrote like a a part of their dissertation using my poem. And so for me, it's like, it's coming from a more persuasive kind of academic space. Mm -hmm. And so I felt, this is the kind of poem that also can be read. And so I chose to put it in full collection.
0: Now is, what do you think is like the poem that most people find you for?
1: Yeah. I mean, I Talk Black is definitely my most popular poem. Um, it went viral after it was shared by Right About Now, um, which was a cipher that I did uh, down in Texas. Um so I think that is probably yeah, my most notable poem. I think it's only second to uh Black Girl Beautiful which doesn't have a it, it doesn't have as good of a quality video. There are many videos <laughs> of Black Girl Beautiful that people have taken over the years, but it's not as polished as um as the I Talk Black video.
0: Now, uh when did you write that poem? I know you kind of it released on the album and the book in 2018, but mm-hmm. You know, I've talked to other poets and writers. That's not necessarily one that was written.
1: Yeah, so it was written the year before.
0: Okay, so it's not too, too mm-hmm. long in between. Mm-hmm. Okay, what was it, what was the inspiration behind that? What, you know, moved you to want to write something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, um hey, I'm thinking, it was either a year before or two years before. now I'm thinking about that. But anyway, <laughs> um <laughs> uh so I used to be a creative writing at the elementary, middle school level. And I remember I was talking to a student once and the conversation, it was all over the place, but I just remember a part of it was, you know, this one student was joking another student about her um, talking white. And she was Mm -hmm. like, you so proper, you talk so white. And, you know, my question was, okay, if that's what it means to talk white, what does it mean to talk black? And, right, it kind of opened up this conversation about, You know, it's, you know, Ebonics is not uh, the inability for black folks to speak proper, you know, standard King's English, right? It really is a sophisticated sort of subcontext that comes along with black people, um, the diaspora, our existence in America, and it is its own study System of vernacular, and we need to honor that, and not demean ourselves by saying like something's wrong or deficient with the way that we speak, the way that we communicate. And so, it really was birthed from a, a conversation that I had with some students.
0: Mm. How long did it take you to to write and polish it?
1: Um, I it it wasn't long. I think that you know I wrote it um in a day's time, and maybe you know edited over that next week but it wasn't um it, it wasn't long the editing process you know I say a week's time typically you know I bring it to I, ha- I have a you know I'm on a writing I'm on a, a poetry team and so I kind of have that circle of writers around me so I typically take it to you know a few teammates what do you think go back to the lab edit it down and you know go from there so um it, it wasn't long at all you know the poems only you know I think two minutes or a little over two minutes mm-hmm. so it's not a um,
0: did you did you know that it was going to have the impact that it did have?
1: Yeah, I won't lie. It's one of those poems where after it was written, I was very confident. all pieces are not like that, but yeah. I talked it definitely felt like this is the kind of poem that's, that's going to travel, it's going to go somewhere.
0: Now, did you is there another poem that you've written that you feel like people haven't paid the amount of attention to that you'd really love it to get? kind of garner that attention that, um, I talk black dot mm. or gets.
1: I don't know. I don't really think about my pieces that way. I will say that over the last, um, year, I guess two years now, because, mm-hmm. you know, 2020 was a year. I have to acknowledge that 2020. <laughs>
0: um, it was something.
1: <laughs> it was something. I will say that I definitely have written some new poems that are different for me. Um, that, uh, you know, just feel more, more current, more fun. Um, and, and so I'd be interested to see, like, you know, how people respond, a wider audience responds to those poems. So one of them is called Dating Apps, and it's really exploring <laughs> all of the many experiences that I've had <laughs> on, um, you know, some of the dating apps and just how terrible and trash it is. Yes. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, for me, that you know, that's different. I typically write on themes of, like, woman empowerment, social justice black experience, and this is like, you know, a bit more lighthearted, you know, something not connected to that, some personal narrative in there, so that's, you know, that's one of the poems that, you know, I feel like could get the same kind of notoriety as um, I Talk Black,
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: um, I don't know, I would also say, I wrote a poem for my mom called Sugar Cane Smile, Mm. and it's you know, about her struggle with diabetes at the time, and that's a poem I think when I perform in person, I probably get the most reaction from. There's always people who come up to me afterwards and say, you know, my my auntie, my mom, my grandma had a struggle with diabetes, and I really connected with your poem. So I feel like that's the kind of poem that also would probably get, you know, a, a, a lot of um, shares if it was, you know, uh, uh, if somebody reposted that poem <laughs> and, and went viral like the other one.
0: So. Now, I mean... Obviously, I don't think you necessarily like. I'm writing this so it can, you know, go viral or whatever. But, you know, what what does draw inspiration for your poetry?
1: You know, it's interesting. I get inspiration from a lot of places. I don't think that I am like some poets in that you know, some poets they like have a personal experience and it is like the poem is created, right? oftentimes I am inspired because I read an article or like I read some book or like some statistic I saw and then I'm like, oh, I want to explore this more. Because again, I think that oftentimes my poetry is connected to some form of activism. My poetry is connected to some, some agenda that I believe in. My poetry is often connected to like expressing different parts of the Black experience. So oftentimes it comes from a more intellectual space, I think more recently, I have been a little more personal in my poetry, um which is which is new is something I'm exploring um, mm-hmm. with, with a push from some of my teammates. but typically <laughs> it's something I read, something I saw, even sometimes a documentary or a movie, and I and I glean inspiration from there and I kind of explore things further. I would say those are typically the first places I find inspiration
0: now is that what happened with the Henrietta Lacks poem you kind of read about her and you were like oh I have to put this down on paper
1: so you know I'm, I'm from Baltimore and you know Henrietta Lacks story is in in Baltimore like you know that's you know, John Hopkins where mm-hmm. she she died and so uh that's honestly a, a recurring theme we hear about Henrietta Lacks all the time in Baltimore and I think that there was a moment where uh, I was reading uh, Medical apartheid, which is a great book that you know talks about many instances like Henrietta Lacks's story where black people um, have been negatively impacted, killed, or you know dissected at the hands of the medical industry right in America and um yeah, for me, it was like exploring things that I was learning in this book in addition to some other stuff I was reading and just remembering thinking back to Particularly Henrietta Lack's story because that hit home, literally, right? As a story from Baltimore. So yes, that's exactly um, what was happening in that poem. And interestingly enough, I think a year or so after it was written, I was actually asked to perform it for her grandchildren. Um, at a. We were all speaking as a part of a program at a mm-hmm. school at a high school in Baltimore and they were, you know, the, the keynote speaker and I was an artist who was asked to perform, you know, alongside them and that definitely was a it I don't know, it was just an empowering experience to to actually hear the the to actually I don't know, have the poem be presented to people who, you know, would really connect with it the most because they were her family.
0: Mm. I want to I wanna backtrack a little bit and, and now I'll talk about kind of where did you get the name Lady Breon? Where, you know, what was your rise like to this, to oh, this that's space hilarious. now?
1: <laughs> that's hilarious because I've gone through a few names, um, Lady Breon being the simplest of them. <laughs> um, Breon is my birth given first name. And um, there was a time when I used to go by another name. I was at Howard University. And I was the coordinator for the Poetry Cipher as a part of our homecoming celebration. And I, I was doing an um, a open mic, I believe. Or no, we were doing a poetry slam to raise money for uh, the, the homecoming showcase. And, you know, there was another curator up in D.C. by the name of Drew Peter Broke Baller. He does uh, Spit That, which is an open mic in D.C. And he was hosting my event. And he just kept referring to me as Lady Breon and it stuck. So I didn't create the name at all. It, it was all Juby <laughs> the, the Broke Baller. Um, I was trying to move away from the name that I had because it was too popular. There was too many people with that name. Um, So, yeah, I kind of went with that. So, yeah, it was not my own doing at all.
0: <laughs> you might be asking what your other, you know, what were the other iterations of your name?
1: Yeah, so at one time, I was Black Pearl. Mm-hmm. It was probably the longest standing name um but black pearl is the name of several books and stores and many other things so i thought i was being unique but when you search online it was like a million hits and i was like <laughs> okay this is not gonna work i cannot even trademark this name um there was a time uh i think i was, it was i was going by mahogany poet uh which is still one of my emails um <laughs> Yeah. Every so often you got to check it. (laughs) Yeah. I had a few names. I had a few names. So, Lady Breon, I feel like, was literally the simplest. Just my first name and Lady. (laughs) Lady. Yeah.
0: Now, do you feel like. I don't know how people come up with their poetry names, you know, but like. What kind. When you're kind of going through that process thinking, like, oh, I got to have a. I got to have a poetry name. I got to create this persona. What what goes into that? I know you didn't like great lady Breon, but like the other ones, it's like, Oh, I'm going to choose this. Cause it'll mean this, you know, why what's the why behind that?
1: <laughs> so black Pearl, honestly, uh, again, I consistently write from, um, the black experience, the, the perspective of being a black woman, uh, in Maryland, in Baltimore, in America. Right. And so the blackness of it all just made sense. Uh, Pearl is actually um, <laughs> my great-grandmother's middle name. Uh, so it was just a call to my lineage, the, the matriarch of my family. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: and I really thought it was creative. Okay? <laughs> I really did. Because I was like, oh, but black pearl is actually a thing. And so like, I had photo shoots and I was wearing black pearls. And I was just so excited. And then to, to, to know so many other people had the same idea. I had to just give it up.
0: I love that you, like, had a photo shoot going. You were like, (laughs) I'm going to get it together. We have the branding, you know. And then you're like, ah. (laughs) All the things. So it's so interesting that you talk about, like, now you're switching to write more personal poetry when Mm -hmm. you, you know, but usually you write about the Black experience. How do you find that as, I guess, not as personal? Yes, when I say...
1: No, that's a, that's a really good question. And I guess to give it a little more context, for example, uh, my, my father transitioned in 2015. Um, this was also during the time of the Baltimore Uprising after the death of Freddie Gray. Uh, my city's on fire. It's really just a tumultuous year, but the most tumultuous part of it is that I lost my father during this time to a uh, terminal uh, illness that he mm, had. Mm. So it was, you know, writing about, the poem was called, um, daddy daughter dates in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And it really was talking about how I, you know, I I watched my father die. I spent so much time in the emergency room at hospitals and then at his hospice, right. Until his passing. And that's just deeply personal, right. That is beyond the black experience. That is beyond being a black woman in Baltimore. That's something that's only my story, right. Like as Mm -hmm. it relates to my father, um when I'm talking about the black experience, right? This may be things connected to the prison industrial complex. This might be things connected to um <clears throat> uh police brutality. This might be things connected to like my hair, right? And you know, gender hair politics. This might those kinds of things that I think are my story, but also have this universal um macro level message, as well as a micro level kind of expression of, of of my own connection to those things. So those things, I think, although they are connected to me in a personal way, mm-hmm. they exist so far beyond me in a universal way that they are not as personal. And, you know, most of the poem is speaking to the we, to the us versus just to the me.
0: That's true. I, I understand like that difference, but it's so interesting because when I hear you speak, it's like it does sound so personal, like so deep. And I think that is a the reason why people connect with your poetry. Like I was I was watching you perform um I think it was at a Black Lives Matter protest. Mm-hmm. This was like five sixty My lord. Yeah, it was like would five, have been, six years it would ago in twenty fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's six years listen. Time is a flat circle. Uh, yeah, crazy. and and I, re- and I remember like watching you and, and you were talking about how, you know, black women are so often left out of the conversation, but, but often, so often called to rise up to the occasion. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, it just, it felt so personal. Mm-hmm. And I like, I think especially at the end, you just kind of dipped. You were like, I said what I had to say and I yeah. left. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I feel I felt like it was like this this thing that had been building up inside of you, and you had like finally been able to release it.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Can I tell you the truth about that poem? Mm-hmm. So again, it's 2015. Um, my city, you know, is experiencing um a, a uprising, and we have national attention. Just you know, everybody's eyes are on Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So so coming into the city and you know outside of my work as a poet um, i do community organizing work advocacy work with an organization called leaders of a beautiful struggle uh, we're known for doing that work in Baltimore, and um so when this moment is happening when it's erupting because you know we've already been doing work regarding um the uh, law enforcement officers bill of rights and police reform everybody is you know looking for us to be a part of this movement and as a poet it's like you know, poets typically not just poets but artists are also a part of you know social movements they're documenting they're they're creating the 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 mantras the the songs the all the things right and so cornell west is coming into town he's doing a speaking engagement at a church i get called like hey you do a poem to open up this this thing and i'm like i have zero poems for this moment what are you talking about <laughs> and they're like I know you got something. You do this work. So I sat in the car an hour before this. No, season, you didn't. And I wrote that. Poem.
0: No, you didn't, but you weren't looking at nothing.
1: So the time where it was actually reported was at a March that I think was a month later. So I had memorized.
0: Okay. 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 But
1: the month before when Cornell West was, cause, cause I think you're look. you are talking about the one I had on a shirt, I think like this, um, think so. it, but it was green. And, um, I was in, I was in DC and we, I, I think it might've been a monument or a Capitol building or something. like So it. yeah, that's like a month later where I like, you know, was memorizing it while driving up to DC cause I wasn't going to be able to use my phone, but I wrote it at an hour before that, that, uh, engagement with Cornell West. Um, because I was like, you know, I can't, you know, busted not on topic. <laughs> and I'm meeting Cornell West for the first time. And also, you know, I, I really, and I was scared. Okay. I was scared to do the poem because this was a protest in which we were talking about, you know, Freddie Gray, a black man who had been slain. We okay. were talking about, you know, Tyrone West, another black man who was killed by officers. Uh, years before in Boston, we were talking We were talking about all these black men being slain. And here I was getting up talking about, but what about the sisters? And I'm like, this is going to be a slap in the face to these people's families who are in the building. But what I found was um, they were like, no, you're right. And we're also making space for women and folks with trans identity and all, all the folks in the LGBTQ movement, and, you know, all the different people who we sort of ignore when we act like the black lives matter hashtag is only for black men. And I was just relieved because I was like, I'm get cussed out
0: in this church. <laughs> um, so All yeah, the aunties a- in the back be like, girl, now right? I know you can say some nice things, but you had to get up on, I could already like hear it in my mind. <laughs>
1: yeah. But it was a good experience. It definitely, that was the moment of growth and like, but again, for me, it's like, I know for, you know, it sa- you said it sounds like it's personal, but for me, I, that was my analysis of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement at that time. Like, that was just, you know, more more political or connected to social justice than it was to my own personal story, although my identity is deeply tied to it, which makes it important. It was mm-hmm. making good work, right? makes a good poem, but it really was so far beyond me, so far beyond. Me.
0: So do you feel like you are like really stretching your muscles as a writer? Because I think the the idea is always that, you know, we, because I, I write as well, not always poetry, but I <laughs> write um scripts and, and, and other things. And, and I'm a journalist. So like, it always comes from, it always comes from personal experience. I think that's always like the idea. It comes from personal experience, it comes from deep within yourself. And when you hear someone like, no, it's not necessarily from deep within me. Mm -hmm. Um, So is, you know, like, do people are like, girl, really? Or do they like, how do you do that? How do you dissociate? I guess it's not dissociating. I can't think of the right word, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah,
1: I think, I think we all write from our social location, right? We are all writing from our position in society, right? Me, I come from you know, a working class family from Baltimore City, I'm a, I'm a black girl, you know what I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a creative, I'm a, a, a radical Christian, like, all these things, these are all things that um, make up my, you know, social location and anything I'm writing from is going to start from that space and stem outward. So, the things that I find important are coming from, you know, who I am and how I'm positioned in that social location, right? But, Beyond that, it's like my you know, I'm 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 I can write about anything. I can write about anything. That's just my my locus. That's just my my starting point. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, like I don't think that anybody is surprised with the work that I'm able to come up with. Um I'll also say that I write a lot of commission poems where people pay me to write about a very particular thing and I just produce it and oftentimes that is easier done than when I am trying to write work for my own inspiration. So, mm. you know, folks came to me and they're like, listen, it's the centennial of, you know, the the voting act or, um, you know, women's suffrage. And I'm like, great, I'm gonna do a little research and just write a poem. It's very easy. Or it's like, I'm getting married or it's my anniversary. I want to tell you the story of my love with this person. And I want you to write a poem. Easy done. Mm. I, you know, I want you to write a poem for this. Uh, uh business that I'm starting. We're doing a commercial. Easy done. Tell me the information and I can produce a lyrical version of your story. Like those things are, are easy um from mm. for, for me. Um because again I feel like I come I, I write from a more intellectual place. So I'm always trying to take mm. fact or information and like make it creative. I think, you know, that's where the debater in me comes in because that's what I used to do in the debate space. So no, I, I, you know, I don't think that anybody is is confused or like, how did that, how were you able to put that together? Like, that is, for me, the basis of my writing style. And like I said, the more personal, is where I have to challenge myself to make sure that I am telling my own authentic, like, truth. And, and it's not about my authentic truth, it's about the vulnerability of it all. Yeah. Like, I am
0: mm-hmm.
1: a vulnerable writer. Like, all the things that I've described, they're not vulnerable. I don't have to shed or show, you know, deep pieces of myself, you can see parts of my identity in it, but that's not vulnerability, mm, right? Mm, mm. That point, my father was vulnerable, right? That piece about my mom and her struggle with diabetes, there are parts there that are vulnerable, right? Um, but that's not, That's I don't do that too much, because, <laughs> you no, know, you, you shame that for strangers, and you never know what they're going to do with that, or how they're going to internalize that, or you know how that will reflect on you. So that's my own own struggle with with the spotlight.
0: But I think I think then you have such a unique gift because you are able to bring such personability to, I guess, like these kind of outside topics that don't have to necessarily deal with self. Because I'm, I you know you like the your poem. Um, is it Starbucks is coming for You? It Star- mm-hmm. And it's like that is a whole poem about gentrification. <laughs> And you focus on one little entity and I'm like, I I remember when I first like watched you perform that and I was like, but I do like a caramel macchiato, <laughs> like, you know? but I think it's like, it, then it's just like digging deeper into the, into the words and it's true. And the way you y'all, I'm going to link that definitely in the show notes. I really encourage everyone to listen to that and then listen to it again <laughs> and then tell a friend. Um, because the the imagery that you put together, and this is, I think, goes back to your idea about like we're all the product of our location, of yes. like the the coffee being the being black folks, and then having the 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 swirl on top of whipped cream, and that and that being always saying that white is on top of black. And oh, the,
1: come on, you listen to the poem. Yes, yes! girl, I at? told you I
0: prepare for things. <laughs> I can't come in here not correct. Um, I just and I. I'm a weird person. I just, like, sit and just, like, ooh, what's... This? You know, <laughs> like, it's like, let me just lose a little something before I go to bed. <laughs> um, I'll snap in the room by myself. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's just, like, you... That imagery that you create is something that I think, like, as a black woman, like, I'm like, oh, shoot, black caramel macchiato. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I just... Those type of poems... Like, that poem, like, really... I don't know why it just, like... Hit something for me that I so much enjoyed because you hit something that I think like it challenged us, and by mm-hmm. us I mean Black folk to mm-hmm. really examine the things that we also love mm-hmm. that have mm-hmm. also caused issue because it's like it's not. I don't think. Correct me if I'm wrong. That once again don't want to put words in your mouth, but like it's like it's not never eat at Starbucks again, but it's like recognize the position that it holds in the space that it's now currently occupying. Is that correct in saying like, I I mean,
1: yeah, you are, I mean, a hundred percent spot on. I think what you just explained is what I oftentimes have to tell people. Like Starbucks is a symbol, right? You can take out Starbucks and and put in, you know, so many other establishments and the poem still will work. Right. Because it's not, it's not about Starbucks by itself. It's about all it, it is about the process of which gentrification comes in and decides um, we are not interested in what this community is. We are going to create what we think this community should be. Mm -hmm. And we do that by bringing in businesses that are not for the people who live there now, it's for the people who are coming, right? We paint murals that are not reflective of the people who are here now. It is reflective of the people who will be coming, right? We build schools. It ain't for the children who are here now. It's for the children who are coming, right? So like all of that, is a part of what gentrification is doing. And so I just chose Starbucks because it was an easy symbol that I think a lot of people noticed. Like, because once the Starbucks comes, it's like two years later, it's a whole nother community. So Starbucks just happens to be an easy, like, symbol for gentrification. But I promise you, there are so many other symbols that work just as well. And I think, you know... It's it's not that people can't have their favorite coffee from Starbucks. It's just understanding that they're a part of a larger system that is negatively impacting Black communities in such that some of them are completely wiped away and that history is lost.
0: And I think the choice, Starbucks is a symbol, but it's such a choice that it's easy, it's convenient. It's something that everybody goes to because it doesn't matter like I go to start, like everybody goes to that versus I think like, we can insert other things in there, but if you put it in soul cycle, mm-hmm. I don't think it would have necessarily had the same amount of impact because yeah. I'm not out here going to soul cycle. Right. And right. neither are a lot of people. You know what I mean? So I feel I feel like Starbucks just really hit it in that in that uncomfortable spot of like that's something that everybody does. And we have to pay attention to that, that we've normalized the okayness of of having certain things come into these areas.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it is hard. You know, just vacation is one of those conversations that are hard because it, it, it walks a fine line, right? Like we're not saying that change is bad. We're not saying that, you know, upgrades to our communities or community revitalization is bad. What we are critiquing is connecting community revitalization to an influx of white institutions, right? An influx of, like, uh, white ideas and the white imagination about our community. It's like, you can change, you can make changes in the community, you can revitalize the community and keep it black, Mm -hmm. and honor its legacy, and you know what I mean, make space for the people who are already living there. Like, that's really what the conversation is about, and so it's a tricky conversation, that's why, you know, I was really proud of being able to create Starbucks because like you said it makes that conversation a lot more accessible
0: it's like I I think like I like getting poetry like that and I hope others do as well because I I think about you know DC which is where I am not like it was chocolate city I mean it still is chocolate city and you know I think about the fact of how expensive it is it is for me to get to work I didn't grow up here you know I but You know, it's been my home for some years now and thinking about like the changes that I've seen and talking to D.C. natives and how they'll tell me, oh, that part of, you know, Arlington used to live in used to be we didn't go down that street, you know, and how like that wasn't even that long ago because the people I'm talking to are my age or a little bit older and how quickly those changes happen without us really realizing it and then seeing the people that it's impacted and what are we doing now to help them.
1: Yeah, DC is the place I loved on the poem most. I went to Howard University, and uh, I, I I think I saw a wave of <laughs> gentrification while I was at Howard. I mean, I mean, a great example is just the, the changes that you that you see on uh you know Georgia Avenue alone, or down you know U Street, which is places you know right around Howard that you know I frequent, like you know. Where I used to live on P and Third, there's a high school um, right up the street, and they like redid the whole thing. I mean, it looks like a, yeah, it looks like a brand new, total different place, right? And so I'm thinking about all those communities. So I experienced, I think, you know, the the, the onset of like a, a particular wave of gentrification in DC. So I love, I love doing Starbucks in DC because I know DC folks are gonna get it you know, doing a poem like that, like at a bus boys, for
0: example. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, you're going to get it, right? And there are even lines in the poem that are actually not references to Baltimore, but references to D.C. because again, I'm thinking about both my city, but also you know what I mean, D.C., which is where I spent, you know, years of my life in college. So, yeah, definitely.
0: And, I, you know, we talk more about identity, and I want to talk about your um, your poem called My Mother's Hand. And when I first, like, saw the name, it was not what I expected. And then when I listened to the poem, and, it, you, you know, you talk about basically, like, really just, like, form, formulating your identity because people were surprised about the power that was coming from you. And I think, I mean, I think that says a lot about how we identify as, as Black women. Because mm-hmm. this, you know, you had to put in your locks for people to then understand the power in which you were speaking with, but you mm-hmm. should be able to carry yourself in any type of way for people to recognize that that power. Can you t- talk to me a little bit yeah. about that poem?
1: You know, it's funny. It's like a catch twenty two. Like uh, so many parts of that poem, I think it's just interesting. Like you know, I had to fight with my mom to, and I mentioned it. i kind of mentioned it in a poem to to lock my hair. Um, although my mother has locks now, so it's it's a whole. <laughs> But, um, you know, she just was like, you know, she, you, you look like a pickin' girl. Like when I was growing out my hair and trying to grow out the perm, she just like, you look crazy. And I'm just like, this is what I want to do. This is, this is how I want to look. How I want to show up in the world. And I'm going to go through, you know, the ugly process of, um, undoing this perm in my hair. And like, that was a, that was a battle. She would like, <laughs> I had to wait till I was graduating high school. Um, and it's like I'm grown now. I'm leaving your house, so I'm going to <laughs> lock my hair before she actually like took me to a salon because she knew that I was going to do it with her without her at that point, right? So that was like a moment of independence for me, like you know, kind of stepping outside of what my mom said I could do, right? I think the second thing is, you know, in high school and like freshman year of college, I was a tiny dainty little a hundred pounds wet kind of girl. <laughs> and you know, uh at you know, before I started growing my hair, I had a little perm. It was cut. It just it I just had a aesthetic. I had a look to me. And people just assumed like that same kind of cute little dainty sound was gonna come out when I did my poems and I and that wasn't it. Like that my my uh my thoughts, you know, it didn't match what I think people assumed I would be like from the way that I look. And like you said, I mean, that's unfortunate. I'm not sure why we can't be pretty and dainty and whatever, and also smart and, um, assertive and, uh, you know, stand on whatever things we believe in. And you know what I mean? Community organizers, whatever. I don't know why those things have looks, but they do. And, um, you know, for me, I wanted when I showed up to a space, people expected exactly what they were going to get from every time. Mm. And for me, my locks was an expression of that because, um, you know, the girls with the natural hair, I feel like people, people expect something different from them. And then it's not just the natural hair, but then it's the locks. Like somehow locks are like the revolutionary look, Right. So I wanted (laughs) afros and locks. Those are like the revolutionary look. So I wanted all of that. And you know, my hair, and, you know, I started to dress more Afrocentric, or dress. You know, even when I wore my graphic teeth, it was a message that I just feel like was expressing the person that I was on the inside. And so, yeah, it was a uh, a reclamation of self. It was a, a outward showcase of, of my identity, and that poem, you know, really speaks to that. But I said it's a catch twenty-two because now um, it's it's like the opposite. People are so anticipating that I'm going to be this rebel rousing, rambunctious, radical that is like when I'm not in that space, when I just want to move free on, talk about what I'm binging watching on Netflix, it's like people expect something different. And I'm like, can I not be that in this moment in time? So, you know, people really don't give space for the the duality that exists, the complicated humans that we are, all the different boxes that we check. So that's just a, you know, that's a human issue, an American issue, I think. A Western issue. I'll say that in boxes and categories far too often.
0: I agree, because I, I think it, you know, also, like, you're talking about your mom, because it also comes from within our community. Because, like, my, so my mom has sister locks, and mm-hmm. I've wanted to lock my hair for years. Um, Have I done it yet? No. Uh, But, <laughs> <laughs> but like, I remember, you know, talking to my mom. She's like, okay, but you got to get the sister locks. And I was like, well, why? Like, I just want to get the normal, like, I think those are small. She's like, no, but these are, like, perfect. They still look nice. They'll, like, da da You know, like, having this certain kind of idea of even if we're going to be more, quote-unquote, Afrocentric, mm-hmm. that it still has to confine into a certain box or look so it can still be aesthetically pleasing. But then it's, like, aesthetically pleasing for who?
1: Ex- yeah. I mean, you, you said it. Like, to... <laughs> For me, I mean, it's so many examples that come to mind, but one that I'll share is when I got to Howard, I was originally um, enrolled in the School of Business, right? Um, I just knew, I wanted to be a poet, but I said in order to make money, I need to open up some kind of institution (laughs) that could, you know, support my creative side, right? So I was like, I'm gonna open a cafe or some kind of performing institution, whatever. But I quickly left the School of Business because on my first day, Um, I'm talking, I talked to a student, talked to a couple faculty members in the school of business and they all assured me that I would need to comb out my locks that I just fought my mother to get that. I, you know what I mean? I was all in this place reclaiming my identity and they like, yeah, but if you're going to make it in corporate America, or if you're going to make it as a successful business owner, you can't have locks, right? Like that is going to limit your, uh, you know, upward mobility. Your vitality, your success, and I'm like, this is Howard University. Is this the conversation we're having at a historic Black university that my hair is going to be the hindrance? That it's not about my ability; it's about the aesthetics, the outward appearance. And I was so upset. I left the School of Business and I went to the School of Communication, where I felt like nobody was going to care about my hair. Um, so, I mean, it's true. It's true. Like even. Within our community, it is still a conversation about respectability politics, right, and, and hair and gender politics, and how we have to show up to be to be successful. And while, unfortunately, I know that there are a lot of spaces where that's true, those are the spaces I don't find myself. Like, I've decided to continue to be an artist, to be an art entrepreneur, and to, you know, move about in the world how I wanted to, and even if I had to take certain um, you know sacrifices and pay or whatever which I don't really feel like I've taken much of I was okay with that because at least I could be authentically who I want to be
0: so how do you you know you talked about being like a, a teacher creative writing teacher for a bit so are you doing full you know full-time poetry writing like what does your day look like now
1: yeah so interestingly enough as of uh, 2019, July. Um, I am, so let me backtrack. I became a full-time artist in 2014. So I was a creative writing teacher from, uh, when I graduated in 2012 until 2014. And I was on a track to be a core curriculum teacher, but it was so hard for me to be both a creative and an educator because shout out to all the educators. It takes so much time outside of the time you're on the clock to do that preparation. You know, having conferences with parents, um, all of the the meetings that you have to have with the school's administration. Like, it's a lot of time. You don't get paid. My mom's a teacher,
0: so I see it. So You know? Mm -hmm. So it was
1: just like, I couldn't see myself continuing as an artist if I was the, you know, remain a creative writing teacher. So I decided to to take a leap. I was like, I don't know where my money going to come from, but poetry going to hold me down. And if I fail, I can always come back to teaching. I'm young, right? So that's what I told myself. So I took that leap in 2014, never looked back. I've been an um, independent artist since then. And so, you know, during that time, I, it, it looked a couple of ways. So I, I joined the organization, Do More Baltimore, where I continued to be a teaching artist, but I was a contracted artist. So I would get sent to all kinds of schools. I had a prison contract where I was teaching young people inside of a uh, 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 um, in, uh, uh, jail Um, I, you know, would go to libraries, all kinds of places where I would teach, you know, workshops, residencies for poetry. Um, I also was doing, again, commission work. I was doing slams, competitions for money. I was, um, you know, publishing work, selling merchandise, right? My my album at the time, which was my first album. Um, all those things, right? Different streams of income all connected to poetry. And that's how I was really, um, you know, mostly performances, right? for service for That's how I was making up, um, my, my income, but that means every day looked different. It just depended on, you know, who was calling me to perform during that time. Um, and I also was still doing organizing work. So I was spending a lot of time with leaders of a beautiful struggle and my church pleasant hope, um, where I did a lot of work as well. Um, but more recently, uh, reason why I mentioned 2019 is because I actually founded, um, a new nonprofit called the Pennsylvania Avenue Black Arts and Entertainment District. Um, It's an arts and entertainment district in West Baltimore. Um, It's one of four in Baltimore, um, but it's the newest one. And it's the only arts and entertainment district in the state of Maryland that is actually dedicated to celebrating, supporting, and promoting Black creatives. Um, And so I am now the executive director not because I went into the work to become the executive director. It was kind of like, <laughs> Rion founded this thing in connection with other grassroots organizations and organizers. But it was like, she got the time. She young. She, she an artist. Brion, and Brion's going to be the executive director. And I'm like, okay. So this is the thing. And so now I'm, you know, I still do my full-time artist work but I'm also a full-time executive director now and you know building so the organization is uh just just turned one um this month um because after we were established it took us a few months to actually become a full nonprofit, and we just we just turned one so that's like a whole new chapter in my life now
0: (laughs) that's so cool I love how much you know or where poetry has taken you because I think so often with creatives like People don't fully see the the path
1: mm-hmm. in which it
0: can lead you. And I think that's that's difficult for folks. But it's Certainly. like there's so much in this world that you experience because creatives were like, I'm gonna take the road less traveled, and then here oh, we are. Cert- you know? Yeah,
1: people I don't I don't think people give enough credit to all the ways that art and entertainment shows up in our world. Like so many different things. I mean, down to you know, the style of a city. That was an artist saying, this is the font we should use on the street signs. This is the color, you know what I mean, that the city's, you know, logo and flags. I mean, all these, these are creatives who decided this is how things should look. This is the feel we're going for. This is the culture we're trying to create. These are creatives. I mean, down to the smallest thing. And I think too often, you know, we just kind of write that off, but it's like, no. The artist is a very vital uh, role and member of society in our communities. And we need to honor um, the space that we that we hold.
0: Um, what is any advice you have to to, you know, budding poets or um, or people that want to get into writing and poetry? Um, my
1: advice is to read and study and connect with other artists. Um, it's, you know, art is not one of those things that should be done in the silo. Um, you know, so if you are art, if you're a poet, you should be reading poetry or going to listen to poetry, going to, you know, poetry events. That's the way to get connected to the scene that you're closest to. That's the way to, you know, find, um, inspiration. That's the way to connect to, to other folks who are we're like-minded, um, if you're an artist, same thing, you know, a visual artist, then, you know, find out, you know, what's your favorite style by experiencing other styles. Like, so one, I think, is to study and experience that art form. I think, you know, I would encourage folks to keep at it. Art can, you know, the, the fire we have for our art is not always the most lucrative thing. Um, for some of, the, some of us, we've been able to make a career out of it some of us is always going to be a hobby thing because we weren't able to make a career out of it and that's okay too, but keep at it, right? You're necessary. Um, despite sometimes it not feeling like that's true. Um, I think those would be the two things that, um, that I would say, yeah. And particularly to, to, to black creatives. Um, I think that, you know, we don't have the luxury of, of making art for art's sake oftentimes and that's okay. I think people need to hear that truth. I think, you know, you are, are necessary in that you, you document what's happening. You help to um, inspire folks. You help to get people through the day with what it is that you're creating. And that's that's necessary.
0: I like that. Um, and the last question that I ask all of my guests is how do you define being a woman or womanhood?
1: Woo, <laughs> child. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I, the reason I gave that response because you know, I I think um, I have never you know thought so deeply about it until um, I connected with a friend of mine named Kenneth, who um, he talks a lot about. He he's a same gender loving uh, man, and he talks a lot about like you know masculinity versus femininity, uh, womanhood versus manhood, and the more we talk about like what it means to be a woman or what it means to be feminine versus what it means to be a man and what it means to be masculine, the more I have decided um, that there is no clear definition. <laughs> <that> it, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that English language does not have verbiage to accurately describe. Um, I think that there is such a, a you know, multitude of things that, that comes with um, femininity and womanhood, and it doesn't look like one specific thing. And um, I think to try to put it into words, is I haven't found a way to do it that is right. Um, but what I do know is, um, as a result of patri- patriarchy and systematic oppression, it is something that is feared. It is something that is demeaned. It is something that is oftentimes oppressed, um, even with my inability to describe that thing. Um, (laughs) um, But it is something that I think I'm always working to, um, I'm I'm, I'm working toward liberation for, and I think that there are many ways to express it, many bodies that, that hold it, um, and I'm and I'm grateful for for being a woman and for embracing this femininity. Um, and I'm sure this is not the answer you were looking for. No,
0: no, no, no. I ask everybody, and I, I get different. <laughs> I I don't even know. I'm like what forty episodes deep. Get different answers every time, and I love it.
1: Yeah, I just think that too often, at least uh, in the West, we operate in this binary and it's not real. It's not real. And it's more limiting than it is helpful. And so I choose to kind of just say, uh, it's different things for different people. And, um, you know, for me, it comes with, you know, breasts and a vagina and this, you know, nurturing spirit, but um, that that doesn't define womanhood or femininity. So it's so many things, starting with the divine creator on down because she was a woman. But <laughs> is a woman. There's that on that.
0: Thank you no. so much. I love that answer. I told you, I, I ask this all the time and I get all different answers every single time. So I love it. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you again for agreeing to this interview. I really appreciate it. Uh, do you have anything that you want to shout out, give kudos to, promote?
1: Hmm. Um... I would just say if folks are interested in learning more about the black arts district, you can check out our social media at official black arts district. That's arts with an S on Instagram and Facebook. We'll be setting up a YouTube channel and Twitter soon. Um, for myself, I'm lady B speaks on Instagram and Facebook. Um, yep. That's, that's pretty much it. I always have a million things going on. So, there's no need to say uh, to list them but you know <laughs> if, on social media you'll definitely see see flyers or see me talking about those things so
0: yeah awesome I'm gonna link all of that in the show notes here and um, also a couple of her spoken word because it's incredible 10 out of 10 recommend um, and for all you listeners thank you again for joining me for another episode if you'd like to connect with the show please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pretty Face Lady 3. Go ahead and like us on Facebook at More Than a Pretty Face. If you'd like to say hi, want to come on the show, know someone who should come on the show, please email me at Pretty Face Women at MTAPF and talk to you soon. Bye bye.